sometimes I guess it's easier to think that somehow cotton wool clouds, fluffy clouds kind of go across the sky and somehow life goes on and somehow we're sort of just drifting on through life and it seems that God is sort of there but not very sort of active and well okay we believe that the kingdom of God is coming and that Jesus is going to come back and sort of one day things are going to warm up a bit. But reading Daniel 10 like we just we just have, it really shows that no, God is absolutely passionately active and is hugely active in the affairs of his people. So that in fact right at this very moment there are angels as it were flying around the place, dashing around the place as it were eagerly doing all sorts of things in all sorts of complex ways in order to bring about God's purpose, in order to answer our prayers, that actually this whole universe is alive with the activity of God, and that life is not just drifting on in a fairly sort of laid-back sort of manner. Now, Daniel was there in captivity. He got into captivity in Babylon as a young man, and now the 70 years were really up, and he himself must have been a pretty old man by the time of Daniel 10, verse 1 there, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Uh, he went there as, as a young man, the 70 years were, were up, and it, it seems he actually went into captivity then about 72 years before this, uh, this incident occurred. And he was, let's say, a teenager when he went to, to Babylon. So there's someone pushing on, pushing 90, uh, I guess. And just uh, in passing, why didn't Daniel return? The decree had gone out in the first year of Cyrus, that's, uh, let's say, just over two years before this vision, to uh, all the Jews that they could go back and uh, he would support them and they could rebuild their temple, etc. Why then didn't Daniel go back? Well, I, I suspect the answer is simply that he was old and frail and he really couldn't. But I, I have a, a list of just little questions about Daniel. Uh, he was obviously a wonderful man, but no one is perfect. And everybody has their bit of human weakness. And I think all Bible characters, if you look closely enough, do actually have their bits of human weakness. And this could be an indication that he uh, he wasn't so strong, maybe, that he didn't actually go back um, when uh, when he could have done. And it was clearly, according to Isaiah, it was a, a command to actually leave Babylon and go back. They should actually flee from Babylon. On my little list of uh, just question marks, in pencil, as it were, uh, about Daniel, would be the instant in Daniel 3 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are put in the fiery furnace because they insisted on publicly praying to God when the command was that there should be no other uh, prayer made to anyone. Uh, apart from the, to the king. Sorry, um, I'm getting confused there. When the, the, they refused to bow down to, to, to the statue. And the, the question is, well, where was Daniel? We know from Daniel 6 that when the, a similar sort of decree was made that nobody should pray to any god uh, apart from the, uh, the gods of the king, well, Daniel refused and he was caught, obviously, uh, and was thrown to the den of lions. But in Daniel 3, where was Daniel? Was he keeping a low profile, or was he simply weak? Did he simply go along and do what uh, what most of the Jews did at that time? Another slight indication here, but just as I say, pencil marks in my margin about uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel 10, verse 4, that we're told that in the 
24th day of the first month, he was by the side of, of the river. And he says that for three full weeks before that, from verse 2, he'd eaten no bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my, in my mouth. Now, that surely implies that he didn't actually keep the Passover. If for three weeks before the 24th day of the first month he had not actually eaten any meat, that would imply to me that he hadn't kept Passover, and the man who doesn't keep Passover will be cut off from amongst God's people. Well, it could be, of course, that he'd sort of mature to a higher plane, a higher level, uh, than sort of literalistically keeping Passover. Um, or it could simply be that he was starting to wonder whether, in fact, the great deliverance that God had worked at Passover time was actually going to be repeated for for his people, because it seemed that there was something the matter, and that the restoration was not going as God had uh, had promised that it would do. Now, we're told in Ezra 4, verse 24, that in fact, okay, the, uh, the exiles returned, but they met a lot of opposition, um, and the rebuilding of the temple was actually halted until the second year of, of Darius. So it could be that all this was just too much for Daniel, and yet he doesn't sort of argue with God. He asks to understand, and I, I find that really comforting, that he asks to understand. He doesn't in a primitive sort of way say, look, God, you said you're going to do this, so why haven't you done it? He doesn't have in that sense a crisis of faith. He has a very deep desire to understand, and I think that that, uh, that is how it should be uh, with, with us that in those things that we, we struggle with, there should be a, this prayer to understand, this desire for, for wisdom, really. Now, Daniel 10 verse 2 says that Daniel prayed for three weeks to, to understand the vision. That's a lot of praying. And then in verse 12, Daniel's told by the angel, from the first day that you, you started praying, your words were heard, and I am come for your words. Bardi explains, the prince of Persia withstood me for 21 days. Now, three weeks is 21 days. So then, there was Daniel praying, first day, no answer, second day, no answer. Goes on for three weeks. 21 days, no answer. Like I said, uh, to start with, it can seem that God is not active. It can seem that God has kind of put us on hold, that God is kind of busy with something else. And, okay, Jesus will come, and then the books will be opened, and it will all get moving again. But, not so. In fact, the very first prayer that he prayed was answered. It just took the angel three weeks to work out, as it were, the answer. Uh, and this, this has a, a huge implication for, for us, really, in our lives, in our prayer lives, when we wonder, you know, is God hearing? There appears to be nothing happening. But in fact, this angel says, I was sent, and I am come for your words. And I wonder why prayer is, is referred to there as his words. I think maybe the angel is saying, look, there's the court of heaven, if you like, up there, before God himself, and your words that you uttered here on earth were heard there in heaven, and I have come, all the way, if you like, from heaven to earth, to answer what you've been praying for. 
Now, this is really pretty amazing, that God is that sensitive to human prayer, whether it's said out loud or whether it's quietly within our own minds, that if you like, within the human brain cells, there is some form of communication, some thoughts there, going to God in heaven. And because of that, God sends an angel. Now, you must surely have stood on your balcony and looked up at the night sky, uh, as I have done many times, and wondered why the whole thing is so big. Why this huge scale of the cosmos? Why not have a God who lives, if you like, uh, one kilometer above the surface of a flat earth, uh, and uh, you know he's there, and he uh, answers and drops things down and stuff. Well, why this huge scale where there seems there is no life? Uh, just why the massive scale? God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son to save humanity. Why, if God is so, as he is, so passionately concerned with this planet, why all this other stuff that is just empty? I don't just mean empty planets, I mean the the huge emptiness of, of the cosmos, uh, of, the, of space. Why? And I wondered if one of those reasons is to simply show us the degree to which God is so passionately concerned about us that over that vast distance, if distance is even the, the, the way to think of it, these zillions of light years or whatever attempts we, 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 we have to, to come to terms with this distance, that over all that distance, human words that are maybe muttered as we lie there in bed maybe or kneel at our bedside, or as a guy stands stands by a bus stop uh, and here in Riga and, and prays to God, that those words are triggering this kind of huge response. It's absolutely amazing. So then we do get insight in Scripture to how this, if you like, court of heaven really works. And in 1 Kings 22... There's uh, an example. Let's just read that, First Kings 22. This is when God decrees that Ahab has to die, and he sort of puts it out to tender, as it were. He invites the angels to come up with their ideas. And uh, the Lord is there, sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven, that's the angels, standing by him, on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? One angel said on this manner, another said on that manner, and there came forth a spirit, an angel, God makes his angels spirits, and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said unto him, How? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And God said, You shall entice him, and shall prevail also. Go forth and do so. So we're invited to see this angel, in that case, going forth from the, the court of heaven and operationalizing God's will, which he's, of course, the angel has had his uh, opportunity to sort of use his own initiative there into how to operationalize it. He shares the idea with God, and God gives him the power, and he goes forth from heaven to earth. Now, in case you think that's too sort of literalistic a view... I invite you back here in Daniel 10 to have a, a close look at verse 13. The angel explains why he's three weeks delayed. He says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but 
Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now, I find that very hard to understand. I remained there with the kings of Persia. Um, I find it hard to understand, unless we don't understand it in, I suppose, the most obvious literal sense. You know, I've come from heaven to earth, uh, Daniel, to uh, work out the answer to your prayer, and, uh, well, I had to sort of physically be there with this king of Persia. And in fact, in chapter chapter 9, we, we've got a, a similar sort of idea. Um, chapter 9, verses 21 and, and 22. Daniel is there again, praying and, and confessing his sin. And while I was speaking, he says in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me. And he instructed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give you skill and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment went forth, and I am come to tell you. It's as if there was this same scene in heaven. A commandment goes out, and it actually says he was caused to fly swiftly. And he comes to Daniel and says, I have come. I'm come here. So it does seem that the angels do literally go from person to person in their work here on earth. You, you have a similar sort of thing there with the, the angels that came uh, to Abraham in Genesis 18 verse 10 and told him about the situation that was going to happen with, uh, with, with Sodom. But one angel, it seems, stayed behind and, and talked with uh, with Abraham. There's an element of, of literal geo geographical sort of travelling around. Now, of course, that may all be a sort of anthropomorphism. I accept that. It may be, it may be just this is the way that God invites us to see it. Well, all right. It's the way God invites us to see it. Um, it would also make sense, however, if, if we are to take it literally, it would make sense of a, a very difficult passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where we're told about uh, sisters should ha have something on their head, uh, a head covering, uh, it seems, as I read it, uh, the context being the, the breaking of bread, because of the angels. I, I find that very hard to understand. I know it's been suggested it, it means because of how the angels decided to do things in Genesis, but um, I don't know, that, that doesn't really quite cut it for me. Um, I find the idea that the angels are literally present, where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst, um, there's the Lord Jesus there at the breaking of bread in, in some sense, and all our guardian angels are, as it were, gathered together at that solemn assembly. Anyway, the point is that our words from earth, as we pray to God, can bring forth an angel from heaven. Numbers 20, verse 16, When we cried unto the Lord, he heard our voice, and sent an angel, and has brought us forth out of Egypt. God heard their voice and sent an angel. It's really quite amazing. Now, getting back, though, to this idea of physical presence. In chapter 10, verse 13, we're told there that the angel says that the prince of Persia withstood me. And you may like to scribble down in, in your 
in your Bibles there, that withstood, it, it literally means he stood in front of me, he stood before me. Uh, and it translates two Hebrew words. And those two Hebrew words recur in verse 16, just three verses later, where, where we're told that Daniel is there standing before the angel. I said unto him, verse 16, that stood before me. So then, this angel has two people standing before him, with standing, standing with him, but standing in front of him, standing before him. One was the prince of Persia, and the other was Daniel. And this has been happening for three weeks, because Daniel's been praying for three weeks. So, in a sense, when we pray, we enter into some sort of judgment experience, I think, particularly when we are praying about adversaries. And God, through his angels, as it were, is standing in front of us. It's as if we are praying to God, and there standing next to us is this adversary. It may be a situation, not a person. It may, it may be a person. Um, and it may not be an enemy. It may just be a situation involving a person that we would dearly like to see changed. And the angel, or God through the angel, is hearing us. And so, verse 13, the angel says that, um, well, the prince of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Now, that gives us quite a window into the whole nature, I think, of the angels, that they are not 100% powerful. There is a limitation of power. We know that, for sure, there's a limitation of knowledge. Jesus himself said that the angels themselves don't know the exact date when he's going to come back. So then, angels are limited in, in power and in knowledge, to the extent that this angel needed to have the help of another angel. And you see the sort of cooperation that goes on between the angels. Uh, really, at the end of this chapter, end of, end of chapter 10, verse, verse 20, um, he says, There's none that holds with me against these, the RV says, that is against the, uh, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, but Michael, your prince. And so, it can be that one human heart is too strong even for a mighty angel. And he needs to ask another angel to come and help him. Now, we know that we're going to be made like unto the angels, Luke 20, uh, 35 and 36, when, when the Lord returns. Now, I know we can't reason too directly from that, but the idea of there being sort of a hierarchy, one angel more powerful than another, one of the chief princes. In fact, Michael is elsewhere called in, in Jude, Michael the archangel, the, the high angel. Um, the idea of a hierarchy would maybe fit in with the idea of one person is given five cities, ten cities, etc. in the kingdom, that one star differs from another in glory. And yet, the idea of, of cooperation, of, of calling in help. I, I just love this idea. I can sort of see it, in, in its essence anyway, working out throughout eternity, because I can see how it works out now. I can see how we in this life are like that, and we call in each other to, to help in a situation that's, that's too great. 
and we are resisted by things. And so I, I think it's, it's a lovely picture of how things will be in, in God's future kingdom. But <clears throat> the other thing to notice is that God would not force the heart of the king of Persia. Of course, God could just knock him over uh, and do whatever he wanted, but he didn't. He's so careful, so very careful, to work within the genuine free will of human beings. And I think this chapter, like nothing else perhaps, shows that, that one mighty angel struggled with this this uh, prince of Persia for three whole weeks, and he needed more help. He needed more help. Now, that's a huge amount of work. You know, God could have just picked up the whole of uh, Judah in captivity and, and sort of raptured them back to back to Judah. But there's this sort of, on a mechanical, on a sort of human level, there is this huge amount of work that goes on to ensure that this prince of Persia was not railroaded by God. And he, he goes on to say that in chapter 10, uh, verse, verse 20, now I've talked to you, I'm now going to return to fight, keep on fighting it seems, with the prince of Persia. And then the prince of Greece is, is going to come up and fight with him as well. Uh, that would indicate again this idea of physical presence. The angel says, well, look, I, I, I've been with the Prince of Persia, then Michael, come and help me. Now I've, I've come to talk to you, Daniel, but look, I've I got to go. I've got to go back and uh, go back to the Prince of Persia, and I've got to fight with him. When you read the record of, of Cyrus's decree, it would seem that he was really enthusiastic to help the Jews. The impression you get, or you could get, reading the record is that he sort of got up out of bed and decided, oh yeah, hey Jews, you you guys want to go back and build your temple and have your have your kingdom back there in in Judah? Off you go. I'll give you everything that you want. But of course, nobody just rolls out of bed one morning and decides that. And it it would suggest here, it more than suggests, that the prince of Persia, that Cyrus, was not actually that willing. That he put up a fight. The angel had to fight him, and he struggled with a guy for three weeks to get him into a position where without, in any sense, sort of infringing upon his genuine free will, the angel, as it were, got him or persuaded him to, to do this. Now, the, the complexity of what's going on is just absolutely amazing. So, one prayer to God, or a prayer about one thing, let's say, I, I know Daniel prayed it for many, many times, but... Um, one prayer about one, one topic leads to this huge amount of work that maybe one person needs to uh, make a certain decision to enable, if that's the right word, to, to enable a prayer to be heard. And you know, God is not just going to pick up somebody like they're a puppet and say, okay, now you've got to say this and now you've got to do that. He's working within the free will that he's granted this, this person to make sure that they actually, their free will is not railroaded, they're not trampled all over, because God of all persons uh, perceives the value and the meaning of the human person. And he is not railroading and is not manipulating at all. And the amount of effort that these angels are going to. This is Michael, the archangel, involved here. You know, one angel, it could be Gabriel, the, the first angel, but whatever, that, that angel couldn't do it alone. And so, let's just take a, a lesson from that. 
to perceive the value and the meaning of the human person, and not railroad people, not bully people, not force people. And this applies in all sorts of areas of our lives. It can apply in our family life particularly, particularly dealing with children, maybe dealing with, with elderly relatives. It applies obviously in our, in our working life. If you've got somebody underneath you um, that, that you need to manage, it can be one person, it can be thousands. It applies absolutely, I would say, every single day to every single one of us. Respect people. Just respect their integrity as, as human beings, with their free will and the meaning of their person. And just look at the huge effort that God goes to, to ensure that he does not, as it were, cross the boundary between reasoning, persuasion, etc., and inappropriate uh, railroading uh, uh, and manipulation. And so when we pray for things, even if we don't get the answer that we expect, don't forget there's literally angels flying around, doing the most amazing things for us. And all the different people that sort of have to be... Uh, well, contacted or have to be worked with in order to bring about answers to our prayers. This is a huge amount of work for the angels. And I just love the way that God works, that he does not just, you know, push people over and say, okay, one of my people wants something from me, okay, I'll just push everybody else over, and, and they can, uh, you know, they just have to do what I'm saying because I've got to rush to answer this prayer. No. In fact, if God were to operate like that, I think there would be a load of kind of contradictions in the way that he behaves. And there, there would be a lot of forcing people to do things that they really did not want to do, just so that he could get his way in answering one of our prayers. Uh, and there's a huge sort of massive ecosystem of people, as it were, here on Earth with all these interrelationships between them, six billion of us at the moment here on the planet. And that's right, God I say could not work like that, he would not work like that. And in, that means then that he has to, and I never like saying that God has to do anything, but you know what I mean. God uh, has to, in that sense, um, work with all these different people so that he does not railroad anybody. That's a huge amount of angelic work. And, you know, the whole of the cosmos, the cosmos is certainly the whole of this planet, is alive with all this work for us. So then, Daniel prays for understanding. There he is by the river, and he sees this vision of this man, verse 5, clothed in linen, loins girded with uh, fine gold, his face as the appearance of, of lightning, body like the beryl, eyes as lamps of fire, arms and feet like in color to polished brass, the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now, this vision has a lot of similarities with the vision that Ezekiel saw, also by a river, also in captivity. And, of course, this would have been 70 years or so earlier. And what, what Ezekiel saw was the cherubim. And here Daniel sees, it seems, a, a man, well, a, a mighty angel. And... Uh, I think the idea of the cherubim vision to Ezekiel, who just sort of 
arrived in, in captivity and, and the captives were there depressed sitting by the rivers of Babylon there we sat down and there we wept when we, we remembered Zion and it seemed like it was game over it was all finished and there by the rivers of Babylon Ezekiel sees this huge cherubim vision and uh, the details of it I don't think anyone can, can quite uh, work out can quite properly depict the idea is though that this is a hugely active amazing angelic system and Daniel is being told that that angelic system is still there, it's, it's still there with him, and that God is active. And that's, I think, behind the, uh, the comment in chapter 10, verse 1, that this whole vision, the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, the A.V. says. Well, I don't think that's a very good translation. The thing was true, but the host was very great, is uh, another legitimate uh, translation. So then, he's being told that, uh, yeah, okay, the, the fulfillment is not quite yet, uh, in the final sense, but the host, and, the, and it's the word normally used about the Lord of hosts, uh, of angels, um, but the number of angels, Daniel, that are involved in working this out is absolutely huge. Please don't think that because the final day of, of ultimate restoration is still a long way off, don't think that I'm not active and that it's not all working towards that final end. And that, of course, is something that we who are waiting earnestly for the Lord's coming, who, let's admit it, have had a lot of disappointments, have been unwise in our enthusiasms at times, looking at time periods, looking at prophecies, and etc., and wondering, I suppose, in our hearts at times whether it really will come, certainly in our lifetimes. Well, okay, maybe it won't. I mean, we believe it will, but, but okay, maybe it won't. But he that shall come will come. Uh, and the point is that everything is moving towards that end with this huge amount of, of power and expenditure of, of angelic energy. But to, to appreciate that, Daniel had to realize that his own power was nothing. Now he says in uh, chapter 10, verse 8, he says, I was left alone, and there remained no strength in me. My comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength or no power. There's the same uh, phrase actually in chapter 11, verse 6, when the uh, outworking of all this is, is described to him, well, we're told that one of these powers will also, these human powers, empires, will also not retain the power of the arm. Neither shall he stand. That's exactly what happened to Daniel. He couldn't stand, and he also retained no power. So I think he was being shown his own mortality and his own weakness, but he was also being shown that all these mighty empires are just as mortal and just as weak as he was. And that's how he could personally come to believe and understand his visions about how power is from God and is only given to certain nations and then it's taken away from them because he himself lost all power. He, he virtually dies. He, he corrupts and he retains no strength. And then he, and he's left totally alone. This is all the language, really, of, of death. And, of course, then the angel comes and touches him, and he stands up, as it were, like rising up from a, from a deep sleep, 
It's the language, really, of, of resurrection. And so, if we are to believe that this world is not as attractive and is not as invincible as it seems, we've got to realize that we ourselves are only flesh and all our power and strength, our human ability, is nothing. Now, when we read that in chapter 10, verse, verse 8, about his power, that um, he, he retained no, no strength or no power, this is the same word that we read in chapter 1, verse 4, where we're told that Daniel had ability, it says there, and it's the same word, Hebrew word here translated strength or power, Daniel had ability to stand before before the king of Babylon. And here he does not have any power to stand. He can't stand. He, he's got no strength and he's on the ground. It's as if he's being told that now, Daniel, you are in the, the presence of the heavenly king. And all your human power and all your human ability to stand is now taken from you. Zechariah talked about the restoration and he said that it's not by power, but by God's spirit that it would happen. And this is really what we all have to go through, one way or another, be it through illness, be it through personal tragedy in our lives, be it through whatever form of humbling we have to go through. We have to go through this to make us realize God wants to teach us this whole lesson of, of, of human weakness. And the more we learn that, or shall I say the quicker we learn that, the quicker we will quit believing in human strength as the way to get through life. You know, something goes wrong, first recourse, I guess, is to think about picking up a telephone and phoning, let's say, an insurance company. Car breaks down, first thing, oh, phone some assistance service, get sick, oh, must phone a doctor, make an appointment, etc., now, that is, of course, that's what we have to do, humanly speaking. But, as you know, the first recourse is to God. And the more we realize that, well, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is the strength of, of that mechanic, of, of that insurance company, of that doctor, of that surgeon, of whoever? What is their strength? Their strength is nothing. Uh, and the more we realize our own weakness, the more we will realize their weakness. And this is what Daniel was being taught, that these invincible, seemingly invincible empires that he was surrounded with, and don't forget, he'd been Prime Minister of Babylon, he'd been high up there, one of the most powerful people on the whole planet, uh, he had to be taught this, that all that was actually nothing. And the, the, the angel says to him that, um, you know, now I have come. Verse 11, Unto you, this man who's there, really very, very weak, on his hands and knees, just crawling like a little child, I'm, I've now come to you, the angel says. And of course the emphasis on the word now is saying, look, sorry, I've been delayed for three, three weeks trying to sort out the answer to your prayer, um, but I've now come. And this really is the prerequisite, I, I think, this, this humbling, this taking away of all human power. To, this is the, what's required for us to really understand. Because his request was to understand what, what's going on. So then, God has not changed. 
it's not that God's retired these angels. They are still active for, for us today. And God is with every single one of us. It does seem that each of us has a guardian angel in heaven. The faces of, of the little ones behold God's face there in heaven. Um, their, their angels behold God's face. The angel of the Lord camps or settles down around those that fear him. Psalm 34. So God is active. And just as much as the uh, the whole nation of Persia and, and Greece, they each had a, a, a leader that was represented by, by an angel in the court of heaven. So Daniel had his angel. And I think that's the, uh, the, that's the point of the, the, the final few verses here. So we are represented before God. God has not, as it were, forgotten us. God has not ignored us. God is active for us. And although it all seems so slow, yet it is all working out. And the ultimate intention of God is our restoration. Because the whole language of the restoration from Babylon, of coming out of the world and going on this journey and coming back and being restored and forgiven and accepted and having a new covenant made with us, all this language there that's used about what could have happened to Judah when they came back from Babylon, this is all picked up in the New Testament time and time and time again and applied to us absolutely big time. And so God's plan and purpose that we should come to his son, that we should come to his kingdom, this is all working out. But of course we want to see it now. Uh, and in this immediate response generation in which we live, in this internet age in which we live, we want it now. We can't even wait five seconds for, for a web page to load without thinking that it's slow or something wrong with the computer or the net's down again, and etc. Um, we want instant response, like never before, I think. Like in no other generation. And faith and walking with God is not about instant response. It's about believing that God is active for us. And that ultimately he will work out his plan. And Daniel wanted to understand, and the angel comes to him and tells him several times, I've come so that you will understand. But what we get now from chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, it's all part of the same vision. There's no break, I think, in this, in this section. And um, at the end of chapter 12, verse 8, Daniel says, talking about or commenting on how the angel says to him that there's going to be an abomination, um, well, an abomination, but that there's going to be a period um, of, of suffering for a time, times, and a half, during which God's people will be, be scattered. And uh, it says, I heard, Daniel says, chapter 12, verse 8, but I understood not. And yet all the time the angel's been saying to him, Daniel, you will understand. You want to understand, so I've come and I've explained to you, and I'm going to make you understand. But at the very end of the whole vision, Daniel says, well, I heard, but I did not understand. Now, I take that to mean that he didn't actually understand all those details. The bit about the time, 
times and a half. He, he didn't understand that. And he was told, basically, go to sleep, Daniel. You're an old man now. You sleep, and uh, you'll be resurrected, and you will stand in your lot at the end of the days. So then, we seek to understand. And in a sense we do, but we will also not understand all the details. Even Daniel did not. He says that. I heard, but I understood not. And yet the angel said, I have come, Daniel, to give you understanding. And that's really our position. We, we understand not all the details. The time, times and a half, for example, the, the whole thing about the, these time periods here in Daniel, we do not understand. We hear, but we understand not. We, we make guesses, but uh, we understand not. And yet the general picture we do understand, that there must now be some period unknown to us for how long, of scattering, of breaking, and yet during that period, God is active in this world, controlling the nations, not forcing them, but working with them, working the whole thing out with the angels hyperactive, running here and there. The angel almost seems to give Daniel the impression, uh, there in Daniel 10, well, you know, I, I, I've come, uh, sorry I was delayed, but I, I must be going. You know, I, I've come, I must be going, I've got to go fight with the king of Persia, and you know what, Daniel, after that, there's going to be the prince of Greece I've got to sort out. Now, you know, he's always telling that the impression to Daniel is the, of uh, a very busy angel. Remember in chapter 9 we said that the angel Gabriel was caused to fly swiftly. To, to, to come to Daniel with, with an answer to, to his prayer. The idea, just half closing your eyes and seeing the outline picture, is of huge angelic activity. Angels with all their power and divine nature, extremely busy. And that is what's happening in our lives. And yet, as I say, cotton wool clouds drift across the sky and it seems that it's the same old scene. You know, we, we get up about the same time each day, we go to sleep roughly plus minus the same time each day, we, we, we have the same sort of routine. It doesn't matter if you're, a, you're Bill Gates or if, if you're a beggar on the street, uh, plus or minus. Routine is routine and life is life and, and things go in cycles. Everything goes in its cycle and the seasons come round and nobody, nobody can stop that and life sort of goes its way. And yet God is so active for us and with us, and it is his will that we, whom he has chosen for his own, his people, his Israel, are going to be moved onwards towards the eternal life of his kingdom. And that day shall come. And although it appears to tarry, although it takes so long, although we, we don't get the immediate answer, as we would like it in our immaturity. This, my friends, is what faith is really all about, isn't it? Believing that he that shall come will come. Thank you.